Welcome. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. Yeah, this is, I know, an identity that needs a bit of an explanation. When I made disclosures of historic sexual assault, people reacted in many ways. Sometimes even loving people seemed to recoil. I felt like I should scuttle away back under the fridge and that Because of what had happened to me, I had an invisible power to cause some kind of harm. It turns out I'm not the only one who feels like a radioactive cockroach. But radioactive cockroach is also kind of shorthand for ultimate survivor. So if you've ever found yourself feeling cockroachy or love someone who's feeling A bit cockroachy, this podcast is your podcast. We're a safe and entertaining community. We avoid triggering and distressing details. This isn't where we share stories from the trenches. We shine a light on the path forward. It's never too late to make peace with your past and step into a strong future. If anything that you hear here or anywhere else for that matter leaves you feeling in need of a chat or more urgent help, we recommend the following resources. one 800 respect in Australia, Samaritans on 11-61-23 in the UK and in the US, one 800 273-TALK These and other resources are on our Facebook page and podcast feed. So, above and before any other objective, we at Radioactive Cockroach offer a companionable and comforting space. So if you're looking for the best comforters around, you've come to the right place. Since we last chatted, I've taken a great deal of comfort from my new hobby. That's me, boxing to Abba, bumping a bag on my front veranda. I can't think why it didn't occur to me to take it up years ago, but it's never too late and I feel fabulous. So, cockroaches, this is our second series and a lot's happened while we've been away. For instance, Judy Stutz got bitten by a spider, killed the spider, and then got into a lot of trouble at the hospital. Don't kill the spider, they said. We don't know which antivenine to give you. This has been an ongoing, highly swollen and somewhat painful issue. But in spite of such distractions, us cockroaches have been watching with amazement as young women find their voice and step into both their immense courage 
and the spotlight, dragging powerful men with them. Last season, you might remember, we featured Judy Stutz telling her own story of an assault inside the camera bubble and its effect on her career. And now, have you read the news lately? International should Google Brittany Higgins, Christian Porter. They are the key names in two separate scandals. But beware, take care. These stories are nasty. Lindsay Lab is a young dance teacher and creative from the US, Texas, I think, who wrote a song four years ago in response to Donald Trump's response to these issues swirling around the US at the time. It's got scary time. And here's a bit of it. When your reputation's on the line And any woman you've assaulted could turn up any time The whole song is on YouTube Check our Facebook feed for the link And yeah, it is a scary time for guys If you're scared of not having carte blanche To behave appallingly on a huge taxpayer-funded salary There have been marches and rallies and lawsuits and claims and counterclaims and still these women keep speaking up. I've had to be careful of doom scrolling. It's easy to spend an unhelpful amount of time following the stories. But it's also encouragingly easy to feel grateful that so many women are refusing to scuttle back under the fridge and to rejoice in the inevitability of real change in the wake of their courageous testimony. Cockroaches are everywhere, out and active. But it's not just the Canberra bubble that's wandered into the spotlight, it's also the entertainment industry, specifically comedy. Rebecca Shaw is a Sydney-based comedy writer who's done heaps of good stuff. Get Kraken, Hard Quiz. She was deputy editor at SBS Comedy. She opens her article that was published in The Age on March the 28th this way. An old white man walks into a bar. The bar is really low, so he hits his shins. He doesn't make any effort to step over it. Instead, he just loudly complains that the bar used to be lower. But it's not his fault he can't clear it, and it's also society's fault. Everyone else is easily stepping over it and leaving him behind. Yeah, that's Daryl Summers, current host of Dancing with the Stars and former host of... I don't know, several decades ago, a show that was popular called Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, where there was consistent racism, sexism and homophobia. And wasn't it hilarious? Complaining that he couldn't get away with that anymore because of cancel culture. Yeah, that really ended well for Daryl Summers. 
Kamal is an internationally respected singer. And in Australia, a bit of a national treasure. Kamal's beloved is a beautiful singer and a conspicuously nice person. He made frequent appearances on Hey Hey at Saturday where he was the butt of many offensive so-called jokes. YouTube them if you must. They're really not very pleasant. Kamal has made it clear that he laughed along with good humour because it was necessary to stay on television and maintain a public profile. He's also made it clear that he found it demeaning and humiliating. Our very own Bess, who you will remember from Series 1, asked her friend and mentor, Catherine Devaney, a popular comedian, columnist and provocateur, a question. And Dev didn't draw breath for quite some time. This is quintessential Dev, reflective and trenchant, seriously on topic, as Bess wonders. I wonder, I wonder, wonder I do. Go on, just ask it. with other questions I was going to ask. All right. Um, okay. What's the worst job you've ever had? I love work. I actually love work. I love – I'm as happy working a sausage sizzle as I am standing in front of gunners. I do like work, but I don't like being micromanaged. Mm. So I think that the worst job that I ever had was probably writing comedy for Channel 9 because there was so much cognitive dissonance going on that I was working with great writers and great directors and great performers at times, but we had these revolting producers who were overseeing the whole show. And these revolting producers were just like these kind of ex-commercial radio jocks wearing bomber jackets who had no taste, they had no idea, they had no vision. They were deeply sexist, deeply racist, Mm. deeply homophobic and they had these brilliant people working underneath them. Perfect example, now Dana didn't work on this show, but Dana Reid who I think started doing comedy maybe in the early 90s and you saw her on um, – she was on Kath and Kim. She, was, she directed on Skit House. Mm-hmm. She performed and she directed across the board. She's now directing Handmaiden's Tale. Like there's all of these brilliant people that I worked with when I was in my 20s mm-hmm. and early 30s in writers' rooms in Australia and they were – I'm talking about the directors and the performers and the writers, absolutely brilliant, have gone on and done amazing things – and they were just cock-blocked by just corporate maggots with no vision whatsoever. And to be be walking into a comedy writing room with these great minds and fantastic ideas and being told, you know, don't write like that, write like this, and then you'd write like that, and then somebody else, and it would generally be someone 
it would generally be male. It, it would be a kind of one of the A team of the stand-up comedians. They would write something that we had been told not to write. And they go, oh, yes, yes, we want more of that. It's like you just told us not to write that. But, you know, Dick Wad wrote that there. And because you guys consider him some kind of comedy genius, we all have to write that. And then it was like stop, start. Uh, you'd say stuff like um, – You'd write something and they say, "Oh, we can't put that on because of the time slot." And you go, "But you could get it." That, but they, the Simpsons would put that on, yeah. And they go, "Oh, yeah, but they're animated characters." It was to be a creative, but to be so controlled and to be constantly bonsai'd and be constantly footbound and mm. trellised like a vine was just. It was a form of torture mm. because as a creative person you were told to come in and be creative, be you, be new, fresh and young. But as soon as you gave them anything beyond um, same old same, they would say, oh, no, but we want new, fresh and young. But what they kept choosing was exactly what they'd been putting on television for seasons and, and seasons and seasons. And then they'd get... They would underestimate the viewer, yet also pander to the viewer, have huge dramas about, oh, the ratings, the ratings, the ratings. And then when you actually looked at the ratings, it was such a bizarre and non-representative system. And the same as the Logies. It's just like why you say these um, awards are just rubbish and not representative and totally mocked up and totally manipulated, yet when somebody wins one, you you – go through the roof with excitement and you take it on as some kind of personal accolade. Mm. It was it was too exhausting. And I remember there was a really, really important point in my writing when I was writing. I took over a um, television writing column in The Age just because a guy was going on holidays and they needed someone to write it and I just happened to be kind of around and so I wrote it for four weeks. I was told I was going to be writing it for four weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think I wrote it for maybe four years or something. But I remember there was this point where I first started writing writing about some shows that I'd never really been into. I just watch telly like every anyone yeah. watched telly. But I, I also do have um, a degree in um, cinema and cinema studies and drama. So I actually have, have always been able to see things with two eyes. I could, could kind of watch something and enjoy it but also kind of pull it apart. And I'd been on telly. I'd watched telly my whole life and they said, oh, can you write this telly column? And I went, oh, I suppose so. But I remember thinking, what the what the fuck do I know about telly? But it's like I've been watching telly my whole life. I never, ever particularly liked it. It was just the only thing that was on. Yeah. So I'd written about some of the shows that are, that had kind of, you know, grabbed my eye when they said, oh, can you write this? And I said, oh, there's this and there's that and Super Nanny's kind of interesting mm. and I wouldn't mind having a look at that and drilling down into it. And then they told me they wanted me to keep writing. And then I'm like, oh, well, what am I going to write about? So I went on to – I looked in the Green Guide and I looked at the shows that people watch, which I never watched. There was stuff like McLeod's Daughters and The yep. Footy Show and, <laughs> and Better Homes and Gardens. And so I thought I'll give them the three a three-episode challenge. I'll watch, them, I'll watch them as a total noob because I hadn't watched any of these before. I'd watch it for three episodes and I would I'd give my outside take. But I'd written the year before on a television show called The Wedge, which was a really awful um, sketch show for Channel 10. I think it was called The Wedge. And um, I'd written on a lot of sketch shows, um, Backburner, Skid Out, lots and lots, yep. you know, Rove, millions of things. And it was really awful. And it was – it was they, they just like um, – 
exhumed these corpses of Steve Vizard and E. McFadden and said, oh, you know, you guys did, you know, fast forward and comedy company. Let's like, let's just, you know, let's not do something new. Let's just pull these corpses up. And so I was uh, one of the writers and it was so awful because it was so awful because the, the, the performers and the directors and the writers were so skilled and they just were dumbing down, micromanaging, overwriting. Just, they just wanted to put their paw prints on everything and they just – it was like cooking with a three-year-old. And <laughs> I, it had been a horrible experience. I mean, I'd enjoy it. I was writing and I was in a writer's room. But, like, deep down – as an artist, it was a really awful experience again because you go, you've got this and that's what you're making. Mm. So I'd had it knocking around in the back of my head that I wanted to write about um, working on the show and how awful, you know, that we were being directed by these producers, you know, who were pandering to this non-existent audience which they made up in their head that happened to like the same things that they liked and they thought their nana wouldn't be offended by and I had it in my head for a very long time and then I I thought um I never even really like working for television anyway so I it didn't matter if I burnt my bridges and when I wrote that and I and I was able to uh, it was one of the most truthful things that I'd ever written and it showed how appalled but also how in, in a small way disappointed I was at this squandering of this amazing talent and so much of this talent has just gone off and done their, done their own thing and it was has proved my point and now we've got the democratization of information we've got so much more so many more avenues for people to be able to platform their work we can see it on YouTube we can we're making a podcast here in the front studio at my house so we are able to see that there's a small part of me going, yeah, I was right, I was right, you know, just get these. There was things like, I mean, I tell people now and they do not believe me, the things that they said back in those days like, that were just givens, like you can't put two women on radio because you can't tell the difference between their voices. Oh, my God. It was, and there's like half the room goes, what? And the other half the room goes, yeah, that's right. Wow. That's right. Wow. It was it went along with the you can't sleep you can't swim for an hour after you've eaten because you'll get a cramp and drown. That we just I would be in meetings. I wrote for the Logies for a few years and I'd say, Oh, what about Judith Lucy? Like to host or to yeah. even present an award. Oh, she's a loose ta- cannon. Oh, she's a loose cannon. Uh but oh well, no, we'll get Sam Newman to do it instead. It's like, oh, oh right. Okay. Because yeah. he's not a loose cannon. Uh what about um what about Denise Scott? Oh, she's in Adelaide. No, she's not. She's in Victoria. Like they would, they would say, "Oh, we'd have to fly them in." It's like, yeah, but you're flying those in. I, it's, it was just none of it made any sense. And I felt like writing for television for much of the time. I just felt like I was being gaslit. Yeah, wow. Because of what I knew, what I watched, the people in the world, what I was seeing. And what they were telling me worked and didn't work. And I was just like, well, why am I even here? Mm. You know? Bizarre. It's, mm. it's really good now that we have, like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, if we wanted to, if I wanted to find new comedy, I would be waiting in, for the International Comedy Festival yes. Gala to be on TV. Yes. But now I can hear a name or see a name or see a snippet of something and go on YouTube, go on social media, 
for example. Um, and that's how I find comedy and that's people putting their own work out there and not being censored and not having to fit a mould. Yeah, I mean, some people would say that it was that it's been a death of comedy, but I wouldn't. I'd say that comedy's changed. Mm. So once upon a time, you know, when I was young and I was into it, I, I saw hardly any comedy on telly. Like it was so rare to see any stand-up and I was always so excited to see someone standing there with a mic just holding the room. There was a comedian called... Dave Allen, who was an Irish comedian, who was very well known, and he sat there with a glass of it looked like it was scotch, but it was actually tea. And <laughs> um, he would sit there and he would just tell these yarns. And I was so excited and, and interested, not so much in sketch, not so much in sitcom, but stand up. There was something about that that was really powerful and really revealing and so true and honest. And the way that they could kind of, you know, tame their audience and kind of bring them in and almost hypnotise them and get them to do tricks, I found just fascinating. Um, so if then, you know, as a young person I would go out and see stand-up and I would, you know, go and see a show that was on in the comedy festival or I'd go to The Last Laugh and they would it was a theatre restaurant and you'd see a couple of stand-ups and then there'd be kind of a sketch act and there might be a bit of an ensemble thing going on. But then it was we'd go to pubs and, you know, I was first I would first go to the, you know, go to the Prince Pat or go to the Star and Garter or go to the SB and I would watch these stand-ups and then I became one of these stand-ups. And if you were a person who enjoyed watching comedy, you would say, oh, say, perfect example, Fleety's on or Judith Lucy's on or um, Banner, Eric Banner's on or mm. Jim Owen's on or Linda Gibson is on or Wendy Harmer is on or whoever it was and you would go and see them because you knew they were on but there would be probably about five other comedians who would also be on the lineup, and then you might go, oh, that person was great and you would start tracking them yeah. and then you would go, oh, you know that person that we saw – her name is and she's on – I just looked in the gig guide and she's on this place and then you go along. There was this really interesting way of like one thing got you in but that exposed you to another room or, or other comedians that you didn't know. And I thought that was – it was a great way to see comedy and to get around and stuff. But it was – exhausting it was expensive for some people it involved quite a lot of booze you were standing in a pub and you were drinking and if you lived in the country you wouldn't have access to all those things if you didn't have a car um some people wouldn't feel safe in those environments and so i think it's great that we've got both one of the things that i found really interesting because i've been going to the to the comedy festival pretty much since it started and appearing at on it appearing at the stand-up appearing at the comedy festival in different forms like you know as just like an act like doing 10 minutes on up front or you know five minutes what it was and doing my own one-on-one shows there's this really interesting point where I'd thrown the program down to the boys who are now 22 18 and 17 and I said oh if there's a are there any shows that you want to see and Hugo maybe it was maybe eight years ago, he said, I want to see My Chonny and Superwog or Frenchie or Neil Cole Hatcher or someone like those people. And I said, who are they? He said, oh, they're comedians and they're on the comedy festival. I'm like, how do you know? He said, oh, I've seen them on YouTube. I've mm. never heard of them. And I was like, sure, we'll get some tickets and I'll go along because I was really interested. And I was amazed at not just the huge audiences they were pulling but the kind of people they were pulling – these are people who never would have felt comfortable at the comedy festival before, but they feel a rapport mm. with these 
people that they see, whether it's something like Auntie Donna or something like that, they watch them enough, they're on YouTube, and then they're like, and we're doing a show near you, and they're like tripping, they are running out the door to buy tickets, and then when they get there, they'll buy any merch that's being sold, and they're not your typical comedy festival patrons because I know what they are because mm. I've been watching them for decades. So I find that really exciting that that people who wouldn't have felt that it was their place to go to comedy feel, yeah, yeah, I know, I, we know I, I'm really familiar with these people because I've seen them in my home on my screen. Mm. I wonder, I wonder, wonder I do. All right, um, I think that's it. Dev, thank you for having us, Thank you us. for thinking of me, Bess. I'm delighted. I'm thrilled that I could sit down and have a reason to sit down and chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, listeners, summer is over. The trees are starting to turn here in the Macedon Ranges. The acorns are thundering down on the tin roofs. Summer has passed. As we move into this second series, we're going to be focusing more on the therapeutic journey. We'll be continuing to move into the spotlight and look at processes, but we'll also be engaging more with stories of encouragement and hope because it's never too late to step into your full self and to live a life that you want to live. When I grow up Judy Stutz and I, when we were little, both shared a similar experience. Both of us wound up underwater, unsupervised and unassisted, but were rescued at the point of death. It's called near drowning or actual drowning. Whatever it is, it casts a long shadow. Both of us had our own issues learning to swim, but both of us enjoy swimming. 
we're going to take you out this episode with a rather nice song by Loudon Wainwright III. It's called The Swimming Song. It's one of his most popular songs and consequently there's lots of opinions about it. Is it about swimming? Is it about relationships? Is it a great long metaphor? Nah, it's just about a nice summer. The truth is it could be both. Loudon could be reflecting on his train wreck of a relationship history. Or maybe, like for Judy and me, it's about swimming. So we'll take you out with this song and some nice water sounds. Take it easy, sleep well and live a good life. See you next time. I move my arms around.